have God fighting you or fighting for you? You're probably thinking, what is this, a trick question? Who wants God fighting them, right? Nobody wants that. I don't want that. I'd much rather have God fighting for me than fighting against me. It doesn't make sense. You don't want the most powerful being in the universe fighting against you, trying to uh, fight against everything you're trying to accomplish. But the Bible says in James 4, 6, God opposes the proud, but he shows favor to the humble. Essentially, what it's telling us is God fights the proud, but his favorites, he shows favor to the humble. Sometimes people ask, does God play favorites? Well, yes, he shows favorite, favor to his favorites, and his favorites are humble people. He shows them his favor, his undeserved goodness. But God fights against the proud, but he fights for the humble. So you might be thinking, why would any of us be proud? If that means that God's going to be fighting against you, none of us would ever choose to be proud, right? But pride is sneaky. And many times we end up being proud without really thinking about it or without even realizing that it has taken a deep root in our hearts. And I wanted to share some of the ways that I think unexpectedly pride sneaks into our life. There's some people out here who, in our community, in our city, would say, I'm not proud, but I don't need God because I can be good on my own. But, in reality, the only way to God is through Jesus Christ. We couldn't be good enough, and so he died in our place. And by putting our faith in Jesus Christ, we can have a relationship with God. We can live and love like Jesus. Our best efforts fall short. Sometimes, even when we do something good, we do it for a bad reason. We do it for a selfish motivation, and so our good deeds end up being bad. Pride also says, God can't tell me what to do. I can do whatever I want. This is my life. I have a good friend of mine, and he always says this. He's like, this is my life. God can't tell me what to do with my life. That's pride coming out into our lives. God doesn't command things, though, because he wants to control us. He commands things because he wants to push us towards joy. He wants to funnel us towards fulfillment. Pride says, God can't judge my actions, but I get to judge his actions. Have you ever seen this sneak into your heart? Where you're like, why'd God let that happen? Would a good God do that? And you start almost putting God on the defense stand and questioning him, like, how dare you do this? But he can't question me and what I do. Just like a child doesn't always understand adult decisions, we don't always understand God decisions. You know, when a four-year-old is like, why can't I get a toy? And the adult's like, well, because we have to pay the bills so that you can live in a house and you can have food to eat. The four-year-old doesn't understand that. At the same time, God is making decisions that are beyond our understanding. God is smarter than the smartest human on her best. Pride says, what I think is true and anyone who thinks differently is absolutely, completely wrong. Pride can't even consider when someone who disagrees with us might be right. We can't even give them the option that there, there might be some truth in what they're saying. Pride always wants to teach, always wants to tell, but never wants to listen, never wants to learn. And I don't know about you, but as I thought about some of these sneaky ways that pride gets into our life, some of these are things that I find myself in. Sometimes pride sneaks into my heart. G.K. Chesterton said, If I could only preach one sermon for the rest of my life, it would be a sermon about pride. C.S. Lewis said, According to the Christian teachers, the deepest, most prevalent sin of mankind is pride. 
Pride like fame says, I'm the most important person in the room. Pride like fame says that you should be center stage, that people should be listening to what you have to say, they should be thinking like you think and agreeing with what you say and celebrating you. Now you might be saying, Alex, I'm not a proud person. In fact, I'm a garbage person from a garbage family and I have no talents or abilities. Maybe you've met somebody like this who's just like, I'm garbage. You've seen some garbage out on the street, I'm worse than that. You've seen like a dead raccoon on the side of the road baking in the sun, I'm worse than that. You know, there's some people who go around saying that. And they, so they say, I'm not proud. Look, see how much I hate myself, so I can't be proud. But pride is so sneaky because pride is not only thinking too high of yourself, it's thinking uh, too lowly of yourself. See, humility is not just thinking lowly about yourself. Humility is thinking about others more than you think about yourself. See, someone who's saying all the time, I'm a garbage person, it's their constant narrative. They're constantly talking about themselves. That's still pride. Humility is thinking about, talking about, and celebrating other people more than you do yourself. The Bible talks about pride a lot. New Testament, Old Testament, it talks a lot about pride. And one of those times is in Acts chapter 12, where we're going to look at this story uh, today. Now, in Acts chapter 12, this story is crazy. And sometimes people tell me, they're like, the Bible's so boring. I open up and it's the driest, most boring thing I've ever read. I don't know where they're reading in the Bible, but the Bible is more Game of Thrones than the last season of Game of Thrones was. Like, this book is crazy. You've got people being beheaded. You've got people being impaled on spears. You've got crazy stuff happening. Betrayals and incest. And the Bible's got these crazy stories. So listen to this story in Acts chapter 12. Tell me if this doesn't sound like this could be right out of Game of Thrones. In Acts chapter 12, starting in verse 18. Um, sorry. Verse 19. It said, after Herod had searched for Peter and could not find him, he interrogated the guards and he ordered them to be executed. Then our story picks up. Then Herod went down from Judea to Caesarea and he stayed there. Now Herod had been really angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and together they presented themselves before him after winning over Blastus, who was in charge of the king's bedroom. Just side note, Blastus goes into our adoption name list. Yeah. <laughs> Um, Blastus. What was his parents thinking when he named him Blastus? But I don't know. So they won over Blastus and they asked for peace because their country was supplied with food from the king's country. And on an appointed day, dressed in royal robes and seated on the throne, Herod delivered a speech to these people. And the assembled people began to shout, It's the voice of a god and not of a man! It's the voice of a god and not of a man! Because he was speaking so elegantly and so beautifully. At once an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give glory to God, and he was eaten by worms, and he died. But the word of God flourished and multiplied. So some quick backstory here. Herod was a title like Caesar or king. He was a regional ruler. And so there's multiple Herods mentioned in the Bible. There was a Herod who put to death the children trying to kill Jesus. Not the same Herod that's here. This is Herod Agrippa. And he was actually raised in Rome with the emperor's son. And so he received one of the best educations in the land. He was very well connected. He multiple times, like, he would go bankrupt and he would be able to... Um, 
he would be able to raise loans, get more money, or he would maneuver himself to get back into political power. Extremely educated, extremely powerful warrior, well-connected, and he ends up here as a regional ruler in this backwater part of the Roman Empire in Palestine. And this would be like someone going to the middle of nowhere country and you have a Harvard edu education and you come in and you're a great speaker and the country folk are like, wow, this is the best sounding thing I ever heard in my life. That's kind of what's going on here. He was trained by some of the best educators in the land in Rome and now he's out here in Palestine, this backwater country, and he shows up and they're like, this guy's words are so wonderful. He's a god. This cannot be a human being. This is a god. And so then in verse 23, it says that Herod listens to this and he's like, yeah, I am a god. I'm not a human being. I'm a god. I'm going to live forever. You ever hear those moments where you're like, strike me down. I remember one time I was talking to a friend of mine and I was like, Telling him about Jesus and how Jesus had changed my life, it could change his life. He goes, There's no God. And I kind of took a step back, like just in case the lightning bolt hit him. None hit him. God was merciful. And thankfully, that guy ended up finding Jesus later on in his life because of God's mercy. But this guy here, Herod says, I'm a God. You're right. People finally realized it. I'm going to live forever. And then he falls over, eaten alive by worms. That's pretty intense, right? That's an intense passage. Like, every time uh, somebody tells me the Bible's boring, I'm like, go read Acts chapter 12. It's more like a Game of Thrones episode. I could see this happening. Every talent, strength, and resource that you have, that I have, is not ours. It's on loan to us from a good, generous God. Now, you might say, oh, wait, Alex, hold on. I have everything I have through hard work and through vigorous effort. In God's economy, there are no self-made men and women. There are people who have used the talents and abilities that God has given them, and he has trusted them with undeserved goodness so that they can use their resources and talents and strengths in this world. God gave you intelligence, he gave you physical muscles, he gave you abilities, he gave you natural talents to hone and to use and to accomplish goals, and he can take them away. The only reason you have what you have and you are where you are is because God has been generous with you. We can cultivate what we have been given, but we can't create what we have. We've been given a gift and we can either hone it and use it, we can waste it, but we can't take credit for it. You can exercise your muscles, but you can't add muscles that don't exist, right? Like if you go to the gym, you can't be like, man, I wish I had a third arm. And it's like, Poof, third arm to work out now, you know? Like, no, you can use the muscles you have and make them stronger. Everything you have is a gift given by grace. That means you didn't earn it, God gave it, so you can uniquely glorify God. Your life, your story, how you use your strengths is going to look different than my strengths and how I use my strengths. Your background is going to be different than my background. Your experiences and the way that you use your strengths are going to be different. And all of that adds up to you're going to worship God uniquely in a way that I can't. If all of creation was created to uniquely worship God, you have a unique role to play in worshiping God that no one else can fill. If Darby says, eh, I'm done worshiping Jesus, 
I'm not going to come to church anymore. I'm just done with Christianity. There's a unique gap in this cosmic song worshiping the creator that would fall empty. You sing a unique song about the goodness of God because no one else has a unique collection of strengths and weaknesses that you have. No one else has the unique collection of experiences that you have. And so he gets the praise because we couldn't have done what we do without his gifts. Now the Apostle Paul in scripture talks a lot about spiritual gifts. Jesus said that when someone becomes a follower of Jesus Christ, that the Holy Spirit fills their life and empowers them to live and love like he did. And Paul said that the Spirit acting in you and through you would manifest certain gifts. Now some in the early church, right after Jesus ascended to heaven, started considering these gifts by level. And they were like, I don't know if you were ever trading card collectors, I love collecting trading cards, and there would be different rarities. There would be common, uncommon, rare, and legendary. And I'm always like, open another pack, and I'm like, there might be a legendary in this pack. There never was. But I'm like, I'll buy one more pack, Darby. You thought this was when I was a kid? No, this was last week. And um, I'd be like, Darby, just one more pack, because there might be a legendary in the next pack. And she's like, there's not going to be, because there hasn't been in the other packs you bought. But I'm like, there might be that legendary. And so I, I kept going. Um, so I had to cut myself off from trading cards because I couldn't stop looking for legendaries. <laughs> um, but in the early church, they started thinking like, God has different gifts that he gives to different people. But there's some gifts that are really rare and really valuable. And the others are just kind of garbage, common gifts. And Paul corrected this. And he said, every gift comes from God and is for the glory of God. You need to stop breaking them out by what's legendary and what's common. And in America, we celebrate the skills and strengths that lead to power and money and influence. And we underappreciate the quiet behind-the-scenes skills and strengths that build character and compassion. Comparison will kill your creativity. And I think we live in a culture that's constantly comparing, like, ooh, they have something that I don't have. They have a spouse and I don't. They have this house and I don't. They have this job and I don't. They have this car and I don't. They have these kids and I don't. They have this ministry and I don't. Their church plan is doing better than my church plan. Oh, the comparison. And sometimes instead of using the strength God has given us in creative ways, we commiserate the fact that we don't have something that someone else does. I used to wish I was more extroverted. I'd be like, look at some of these guys who are leading churches or starting churches, and I'm like, I just like being around them. They're just cool guys. They come in a room, and you're like, I want to go surfing with that guy. I don't even know how to surf, but they did. I get that vibe. I want to go surfing with them. You know, they're just cool people, and I don't have that. I come in, and I'm like, here's a book. You know, like, people don't want books. What, what's wrong with me? And I used to think, man, God, you really gave me the short end of the skills and gift sets. Until I started recognizing, like, God has given me unique strengths to use for his glory, and he set me on a unique path to use those strengths, and I'm going to worship God in a unique way that other people We get on social media, and we're like, look at what they have, instead of thanking God for everything we have. So comparison will kill your creativity. Comparison will kill your thankfulness. Paul corrected this broken thinking about some people having it better than we do. In 1 Corinthians 12, verses 4 through 6, he says there's different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit gives the gifts. There are different kinds of service, but we're all serving the same God. There are different kinds of work, 
but we're all working, and in everyone, it is the same God at work in us and through us. See, when, we, when we're proud, we begin to think that God needs us, instead of recognizing that we need God. It's easy sometimes to start thinking, if you have a lot of gifts and talents, like, what would God do without me? How would God ever get by without me? Faith would fall apart. God doesn't need us, but he wants to use us. I love to use the example that infinity plus zero still equals infinity. We don't add anything to the equation, but he wants us to be a part of what he's doing. We start forgetting that anything good in us or anything good done through us is Christ in us working through us. He deserves all the praise. He's the master musician. We're just the instrument in his hands. Like no one comes up after Jesus play, uh, after Jesus plays, after Darby plays, and they're like, oh, great job, piano. Great job, keyboard. Like, that keyboard really killed it. Right? Darby. Darby took the instrument and made music out of it. And God takes us as instruments in his hands, and he makes worship to himself. Now, imagine a friend lets you borrow their McLaren GT. So this is a $200,000 car, and you're driving around the community, and you pull up at a red light, and you, your windows are down, and somebody walks up and says, dude, I love your car. Well, it's not your car. Your car is a dented Toyota Yaris that's silver, and the hatch doesn't close anymore, so you have to slam it a whole bunch of times. Might be a real, real world car that I drive. But if somebody said, dude, I love your car, and you're driving a friend's rented or borrowed McLaren GT, that praise doesn't belong to you. It's not your car. It belongs to your friend who loaned you the car. Your car is an old dented silver Toyota Yaris. And so when somebody praises you, <laughs> Darby loves her old dented silver Toyota Yaris. When someone praises you, they're creating an opportunity for you to direct their praise to the God who equipped you to accomplish something praiseworthy. See, what happened here was this guy stood up, Herod, and he started speaking. People were like, oh, boy, son of God. And it says he did not give the praise. He did not give the glory to God in verse 23. And so he was eaten by worms and died. See, pride is when we shelf the praise that we're supposed to pass on to God. We say, oh, I'll just keep that. It really wasn't me. I mean, I was the instrument that was being used, so why shouldn't I get some of the praise? And so we have this graphic story then that Herod was eaten from the inside out by worms. It, the Bible could have just said he died, but it's like, oh, by the way, he was eaten by worms. Roman historians actually confirm this story. So we have multiple Roman historians who say Herod Agrippa died from some kind of internal flesh-eating parasite. And uh, they give a little bit more detail, though. They said that he fell down on this day, but it actually took him five days to slowly die. That's what Roman historians say. He was slowly eaten alive over five days. As disturbing as that is to think about, when we're self-interested, we're being eaten alive by pride. It's disgusting. It's gross. It's like your soul is being eaten by worms. Sometimes, when we think we look the best on the outside, we have to be careful because that might mean that our insides, our souls, are being eaten alive by the parasitic nature of pride. And so just so we have a good graphic image, like when we're prideful, when we're like, I want the attention on me. God didn't have any part of this. This was me. 
It's all about me. It's like your soul is just being eaten alive by worms. You want to eat one, Scott? Is that what you think? No, okay. Um, but I just have a visual reminder. Sometimes when I think, oh man, I was really chilling today. I really look good. I really did a good job. I have to take a step back and say, am I trying to shelf praise that actually belongs to God? Because if I am, then I'm allowing pride to begin to eat at my soul. Humility is when we're thinking about God and others instead of thinking about yourself. Sometimes I walk out of a situation and I go, I did a good job. I didn't talk about myself a whole lot. I did such a good job of being humble in there. And I'm like, give myself a pat on the back. What a great job, Alex. You're really growing spiritually. And then I realized for 15 minutes now, all I've done is talk about myself and think about myself. So I've just been prideful by celebrating the fact that I wasn't prideful. Pride is sneaky. Pride and fame are bedfellows because they both revolve around me. Jesus is our ultimate example of humility. If becoming a follower of Jesus is about learning to live and love like Jesus, Jesus was someone who was the ultimate example of humility. In Matthew 20, verses 25 and 28, Jesus called together his followers and he said, You know that the rulers of this world lord it over their subjects, and their high officials exercise authority over them. He says, Not so with you. Instead, of, instead whoever wants to become great among you, my followers must serve others. Whoever wants to be first must be like a servant. Just as I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for, any, for many. If anyone deserved to come in and command authority and demand people do what he say, it would be Jesus. He was literally God. But instead he came in in the form of a human being and said, I'm going to live a life in such a way to show you how to live and love. And he lived in humility. He was constantly looking to the needs of others. He was constantly looking to the will of his Father in heaven. See, the most famous person in Jesus' eyes is not the one with the most authority. You ever do this? You, like, you enter maybe a new company, you enter a new organization, and you're like, who's in charge? You look at the org chart, you're like, okay, this guy says he's in charge, but actually this lady calls all the shots. You, know, you figure out where the power hierarchy is. Jesus looks at our world and he doesn't look for the person who has the highest title or the most authority or commands the most respect. He looks at the person with the most humility and he says that's the most famous person in his eyes. The one who serves others instead of being served. The one who lays down their life, their dreams, and their desires for someone else. This person is famous in the eyes of Jesus. And I have to stop and think to myself, do I want to be famous in the eyes of men and women? Or do I want to be famous in the eyes of Jesus? Being famous in the eyes of men and women sometimes looks very good. Like, there's probably money with that. There's probably prestige, recognition, affirmation. But it's better to be famous in the eyes of Jesus because our souls don't get eaten by pride. Now notice how the passage ends in verse 24. Herod falls down being eaten alive by worms. But in verse 24 it says, But the word of God flourished. And multiply. Herod died, but the word of God did not die. The word of God continued to spread and flourish. Herod had actually done a lot to try to prevent the spread of the word of Jesus. In fact, before this, he had imprisoned Peter, and God had supernaturally released Peter from prison. But Herod dies, and the word of God keeps going. God does not need us 
we need him. Guess what? People will still know about Jesus after we're gone. All of Christianity doesn't depend on us. You can take this weight off your shoulders like, oh man, I have to make it work. I have to make it happen. Because God has been doing this long before we got here. He's going to keep doing this long after we're gone. We're not the secret ingredient that our community needs in order to recognize they need to change. We're not the secret ingredient that our community needs to get better. Jesus is the secret ingredient, and he's not a secret. Jesus might use us, but the world doesn't need more of us. It needs more of him. And sometimes when I get together with other Christian pastors, we name some big-name Christian speaker or big-name Christian personality, and we're like, what's the world going to do after this person dies? Like, who's going to be the next? And we fill in the blank of whatever famous. And I think, that doesn't matter. Because as long as Jesus remains, the people he uses will come and go. They'll live and they'll die. But Jesus will continue flourishing and being so what do we do to cultivate humanity, humility and kill pride? What can, kind of practical things can we do? Um, when somebody says, like, great job speaking today, or great job on that project, or you solved that problem, find a way to take the praise that people point at you and point it to Jesus. He said, man, that's hard in a workplace. Yeah, it, it can be. You, you have to be careful. You have to be uh, creative sometimes. But... Find ways to point praise to Jesus. Number two, take time to thank others because no one ever made it to where they are by themselves. What you'll find is the most prideful people, the people who are most obsessed with themselves, they never talk about a team, even though there were always other people who helped them get to where they are. Find a way, anytime you're praised, to also thank and praise someone else. All of us stand on the shoulders of giants, people who have sacrificed and supported us. And three, take time to rest. If you're prideful, you'll think that everything depends on you because you're the special missing piece. But people who recognize that God's in control and that they're not, they can take time to rest. They can truly sit and say, you know what, I realize the world keeps spinning even when I'm not out there trying to push it to keep going. When I was a kid, we had a globe cheap plastic load and uh, we would see how fast we could get that thing to spin and uh, you know our mom wanted us to learn geography we were like let's see how fast we can get this and so we'd spin it and spin it and it would go we broke it eventually but uh, we had a lot of fun with it until we broke it um, as soon as you stopped spinning it it would slowly wind down and stop it's what the world that you're living in the life that I'm living in doesn't need us to spin it. God's spinning it. And that means that we can stop and rest. Eugene Peterson said, having to sleep every night is a daily reminder that God's in control and that you're not. God is in charge and we're not. I don't know about you, but I don't want my soul to be full of worms. Pride can be sneaky, but I don't want this eating at my soul. I want to have a healthy soul. I don't want God fighting against what I'm trying to do. I want God fighting for me in what I want to do. I want a soul that serves those around me, and I want to live a humble life, a life that God is happy to fight for. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for the reminder that pride is sneaky, that it sneaks into all of our lives. It creeps into all of our lives. It makes us think that we're the authority 
and we judge everything else. It makes us think that we're the most important one and that what we say and think, everyone needs to get on board with and agree with. It makes us think that no one else could possibly be right if they disagree with us. It makes us think that no one dare judge us, but we get to judge everyone. God, forgive me for so often being proud, for so often wanting the applause of humans rather than the applause of Jesus. God, I pray that you will help me to be famous in your eyes. I'm famous enough in the world's eyes. Help me to be famous in your eyes by selflessly serving others without any hope of reward or response. God, help me to live and love like you did, a life of humility focused on others and the will of our Father.